0: It's the Americhicks with Kim Monson.
1: Now, while this is all going on, I went through President Trump's speech and uh, Chuck and Nancy's rebuttal.
0: The most important
1: story. The American people finally said enough, and that is why they elected Donald Trump.
0: The latest in politics and world affairs.
1: It's almost unbelievable that Trump has extricated the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal.
0: And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead.
1: Because ideas matter.
0: It's the Americhicks, dissecting issues. Use as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation.
1: Indeed. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation because ideas do matter. Hey, I'm Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. Uh, Welcome. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. Sign up for my emails. We will keep you apprised of all the upcoming guests, topics, and important events. And I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well, offering you a conservatarian perspective. We have a big show planned for you today. In this first segment, we will be talking with former State Senator... Kevin Lundberg, on how the safety clause is being abused by the radical progressive activists that have taken over the Democrat Party and the Colorado legislature. And then in segments two, three, and four, we'll be talking with Dr. Thomas Cranewitter, you know him, regarding Upward, which is one of his programs that he he talks about how we continue upward to towards human flourishing and thriving and what the American idea does about that. So uh, excited about that. It's going to be a great show. Thank you to producer Steve, Zach, my web and social media guru, and Patty Kurgan, who's doing a lot of great research. I wanted to just let you know, next Monday, March 25th, is Vino and Veritas Centennial. Uh, I'm partnering with Dr. Tom Cranawitter and Jen Hewlin, owner of Water's Edge Winery there in Centennial, uh, for that particular Vino Vino and Veritas Centennial March 31st, the inaugural Vino and Veritas Castle Rock will start. And Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, what could be better than that? Dr. Cranawitter is creating this fascinating lecture series on the Federalist Papers. Because, my friends, we need to know why we believe what we believe so that we can have conversations and engage in this battle of ideas that is raging in America today. To sign up for Vino and Veritas or for more information, go to Americhicks.com slash Vino. That is americhix.com slash Vino. We appreciate our presenting sponsors for Vino and Veritas Centennial. In January, it was Harmony Ridge Construction. That's Rafe Patton and his whole great group over there building homes and usually making friends in the process. February's presenting sponsor was Susan Kochevar, owner of the Historic 88 Drive-In Theater. And we've got a definite date now. Susan is planning to open on April 5th with the movie Shazam. And March's presenting sponsor is Heidi Ganahl and her Free to Be Coalition, promoting free speech and diversity of thought. That is a great idea. So if you would like more information or would like to be a presenting sponsor, let me know. Go to americhicks.com forward slash Kim and fill out the form. Again, that's Americhicks.com, forward slash Kim, and fill out the form. Our little note of inspiration today is Abraham Lincoln. He says, you cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. Again, you cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. And so today, we've got to step up to the plate. Um, Before we get into the serious subjects, a little levity. So, Tom, Dick, and Harry went to a party. After the party, they returned to the hotel, and the hotel was 600 stories high. Unfortunately for them, the elevator was not working. They'd made a plan for the first 200 stories that Tom would crack jokes. The second 200 stories, Dick would tell a happy story. And then lastly, Harry would tell a sad story. So they started up the steps. After two hours, it was Harry's turn to tell a sad story, and he turned to the other two and said, "Okay, guys, here it is. I forgot the keys downstairs."
0: <laughs> okay, so. uh, let's let's put that one in, in the back of the stack.
1: Forever. Okay, I just just so you know, I ordered a couple. Uh, two new joke books are coming. One that had been recommended to to me by a friend, Bill Vetter, Hammer and Tickle, and then another another joke book. So those all should arrive. So I'm going to have some new material for you, Producer Steve.
0: I can't wait.
1: <laughs> so okay, let's jump in here. Senator Kevin Lundberg, former state senator Kevin Lundberg, uh, he really he, he's really watching what's going on down at the state house. And one of the things... Uh, welcome, uh, Senator Lumberg. How are you doing today?
0: Uh, Kim, uh, he couldn't make it this morning. I just got a, a call from Patty. So uh, let's move on.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I didn't I didn't get that. So, Well, a couple of things that have been going on then is that the safety clause is something that is being put into many of these pieces of legislation. And uh, one of the things that they do is just kind of a catch-all, and it says that the General Assembly hereby finds determines and declares that this act is necessary for the immediate preservation of the public peace healthy health and safety and so we are seeing that put into <clears throat> a number of these pieces of legislation and it's kind of a catch-all that says that um that it can in many times can immediately be put into action as soon as the governor signs it and so there's been a real abuse of that it's it's been kind of a uh, moving forward on a, uh, over the last few years on putting that into this legislation, and it's really been abused. So we will get um, Senator Lundberg on to talk about that very, very soon. The other thing that is just amazing to me is last Friday, when we were all so concerned about the national popular vote, when uh, Governor Polis signed that particular. Uh, piece of legislation, something th- went under the radar that many of us didn't even know, and that was House Bill nineteen twelve forty three. And what this does is this gives 16-year-olds the right to vote in school district elections. Now, let's just think about this. You know, we have really seen generally, particularly here in Colorado, that the teachers' union has become very powerful and in ideally, what was supposed to happen is that a community wanted to educate their children, and so they would hire teachers to educate their children. And then, as that expanded public education, we uh, then had school boards to be representatives for the community in making sure, you know, negotiating with teachers and, and just ensuring that our kids were getting a good education. But over time, what then had happened is teachers unions were created and they realized that if they could influence school boards, uh, that that would help in their negotiations as they were uh, negotiating from the teacher union perspective. And so while many of us were sleeping, many of these school boards have been infiltrated by supporters of the teachers' union. So no longer are we looking at the community being represented in educating our children, but we have seen an agenda that has moved forward. And now we're starting to see the actual effects of what is happening in the education system. Look no further than an example would be one of your favorites, Steve, and that that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She has no understanding of the American idea of capitalism, how capitalism has, uh, in the words of Dr. Cranowitter, let so many people move upward. She has no understanding of that because she's not been taught that. And I know that many of us look at her and, and I, I hear all kinds of kind of demeaning comments about her, and, and in a way I understand it, but it's not her it's really the ideas but those ideas have been taught to our kids and we have really done done them a disservice steve what do you think
0: well i i know the afternoon show uh i guess t- today they're going to be talking about this and who the, the promo goes something about who's being who's the man behind the curtain or who's behind mm-hmm. the curtain as a reference to the wizard of oz thing but um you're right i mean in this current decade that we're in she has got to be one of the biggest anomalies that i i think I've, I've seen uh obviously she's being put in place and propped up to to make a big splash but every time she opens her mouth disaster comes out and i'm thinking whoever is behind her why don't they pull her back the the the, the damage that's being done is i don't know it's I, I hope maybe they know what they're doing i i don't get it
1: well, um, I, I do think that there's really a puppeteer uh, behind her, and there's you know been some comments about who that possibly might be. But I think it's more more concerning than we, we, we really realize because she is just the face of what many of these kids have be, are being taught. So then you take this over to Colorado, where then you're going to have 16-year-olds who are totally, many of them are totally influenced by their teachers. You know, And at 16, I know a lot of kids, you know, they're, they're rebelling against their parents. They look to their teachers for support, for, for guidance. And uh, so now we're going to see those, you know, that influence into these elections. And uh, if we don't step up and start to make the case for the ideas of the American idea and freedom and capitalism, and make sure that we're teaching that to our kids, then we're going to be lost in all these elections. And you know, the other side is playing chess. Sometimes I think that we're playing tiddlywinks. Uh, and um, and uh, once again, this is much more serious oh. than I think that we realize.
0: We're playing chess too, but we have a blindfold on. At least it appears <laughs> that way. Uh, who knows? You know, we just don't see the moves that they're making, or and not reacting properly to them.
1: Well, and that's one of the reasons when I was on city council, I always did a gut check uh, going back to the Constitution. And, you know, is this the proper role of government? And that is the gut check that we have to always take a look at. And we have compromised away the American idea. And um, we in Colorado are at the We're at the battle lines. We need to hold a line now, and we need to start to become aggressive in this battle of ideas and move us back to that Western, individualistic spirit of Colorado, which is one of the reasons why everybody has wanted to move here. And so that's why Vino and Veritas is so important, why we believe what we believe. So, my friends, I would recommend that you go and read all of these different pieces of legislation, Pull out your Declaration of Independence. Pull out your Constitution. Get your brain around those those things because we need to understand why we believe what we believe. Now we're going to be talking with Dr. Tom Cranawitter in the second, third, and fourth segments, and it's going to be just awesome. Before we get there, though, Steve, March Madness starts tomorrow, and do you have your brackets done?
0: No, I don't.
1: Uh, I have mine done, and I can't wait. KU all the way. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. And Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. And, of course, we have the Nuggets, the Avs, Major League Baseball starts at the end of the month. And Hooters is the place to watch all the games. Wednesday is Wing Day Wednesday. All the wings you can eat for $14.99. And you might try their new smoked wings. They are delectable and only half the calories. And uh, Steve, Hooters Wings Can Fly. You can have them delivered right to your front doorstep. And when I have the girls come over on Wednesday nights, I order the new smoked wings, and the girls love them. So order your Hooters Wings to go. Have them delivered to your front door. Or find out all their specials. Visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com for more information. Be sure to let them know that you know me, Kim the Americhicks, and we will be right back.
2: All AmeriChicks sponsors are an exclusive partnership with the AmeriChicks and are not affiliated or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson and grow your business, contact Kim at AmeriChicks.com. That's AmeriChicks.com.
3: Dan Predovich and his team at Predovich & Company help your business plan ahead financially. The Americhicks with Kim Munson highly recommends Predovich & Company as your financial business consultant. Predovich & Company will take care of your tax preparation, bookkeeping, and business advisory services. Dan Predovich and his team want to learn about the unique needs of your business through real, honest dialogue. Because of their advanced technological capabilities, Predovich & Company can help clients anywhere in the United States. Call 303-791-3000 to start preparing now for tax season. Organize your business finances with Predovich & Company. Call 303-791-3000 today. Social media is important to the Americhicks since it's an avenue we can utilize to hear from and speak to all of our friends. For those of you who enjoy listening to the show, we'd love to hear what's on your radar. Follow us and talk to us at AmeriChicks Twitter and Facebook pages. Also, if you're a business owner who could benefit from some extra foot traffic from like-minded friends, consider advertising on the AmeriChicks radio show. Contact us at AmeriChicks.com or email Kim at AmeriChicks.com.
1: Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. I dissect issues, news, politics, and opinion is right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, we need to be having conversations. Check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. Offering a conservatarian perspective, thrilled to have in studio with me Dr. Thomas Cranawitter, a great scholar, thinker, author, speaker. It's great to have you here, Tom. Hey, thanks to
4: Kim for having
1: me here. I appreciate it. Well, and you are an entrepreneur. You have uh, launched a number of businesses. And let's talk about this uh, Upward BA, uh, Upward Business Academy, uh, which is UpwardBA.com. Tell me about that.
4: Well, th- this started from a, a, a really simple idea. So I, I tend to run around with a number of economists, uh, PhD, economist <laughs> types. I I co-teach with them and friends with them. And, and, and I always kind of joke about them. I, I say, man, you guys really suck. And and, and, and and I'm joking. They're very smart guys. But the reason I tell them they suck is because they tend to skip over the most fundamental things, the very first things. They, they want to get to their fancy econometric equations that they think predict all sorts of things. And what they skip over are really foundational ideas such as wealth, what wealth is. And it turns out that wealth First of all, wealth is it's, it's different than money. Uh, money is just a currency. Money can be printed. It can be destroyed. It's not the same as wealth. Wealth is anything that other people value. If you have something that other people want, that other people are willing to trade for, you're wealthy. If you have nothing, and, and, and I want to be clear here, right, I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about, say, spiritual wealth. or the I'm talking about economic wealth, financial wealth things that people are willing to trade Mm -hmm. for. And wealth has to be created. Now, for an entrepreneur like you or me, that seems really obvious. Of course it has to be created. For a big chunk of the human population around the earth today, that is news. They don't know that. Many people assume that wealth just exists out there somewhere. They're not quite sure where it is or where it came from. They really don't care. What they focus on is how it gets divided or distributed. So you'll, you'll hear these statistics about how some tiny percent of the population controls some large percent of the wealth, and and their conclusion usually is that is a great injustice, therefore we need government programs and policies that take wealth away from those who have much and distribute it to those who have very little. And the whole premise for that outlook on the world is a premise that wealth simply exists. And the only question is, how does it get divided?
1: Well, and the other and, thing is that, that wealth is just a certain pie. Yes, that and it's a
4: fixed amount
1: it's a fixed amount
4: yes and and therefore if some people have much of that fixed pie there's very little of the pie left for everyone else right so so therefore then you get into uh, arguments of confiscation of property and high taxation and things like that but it's also interesting to look at it from a a psychological point of view or a spiritual point of view, it turns out to be a, a really ugly way of living. It, it, it turns out to be an angry way of living, right? It mm-hmm. it fuels envy. It fuels dissatisfaction. it, it and, and I think I think when I look around at the American culture today, I see people, especially young people, but but older people too, who who are fueled by this envy and this anger at those who have been successful and part of the reason we created upward business academy was to go into businesses in particular and talk to employees about this simple idea that wealth it does not just exist out there in the world and it's not a fixed amount it can be created and that basic idea of wealth creation turns out to be one of the most hopeful inspirational ideas ever The idea that wealth can be created is not only good for wealthy people, more importantly, it's good for poor people. Because what it means is if you're born into the world in a condition of poverty, you're born into a poor family, you're born into a a part of the world where there's much poverty, it does not have to stay that way. You don't have to stay poor your entire life. If wealth can be created, you can create wealth. I can create wealth. Anyone can create wealth. And then and then we, we are, the training we offer through Upward Business Academy keeps pulling on that string. So we start with this idea, wealth wealth can be created. That that raises a question. Well, how, how how do we create wealth? And it turns out the answer is absolutely beautiful. The answer is stop thinking about yourself so much. Just for a moment, look around you, look at other people and ask the question, what do they value? What do they want? What do they need? What do they appreciate? And how can you help create that, deliver it, right? How can you help get to other people what other people really want? As soon as you do that, you are creating wealth for yourself by producing something other people value. Uh, I, 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 I do this drive three children, and I do this drill with my kids. We'll we'll pick say. Uh, Uh, a highly paid professional athlete, you know, I I don't think of someone, LeBron James, right? He's a basketball player. It makes many millions of dollars. And if he comes on the TV, I'll I'll pause it and I'll look at my kids. I'll say, tell me, why does he make millions of dollars? And they used to say, because he's a really good basketball player. And I would correct them and say, no, 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 no. He gets paid millions of dollars because many people value watching basketball they really enjoy it they appreciate it and he happens to be good at that so they're willing to pay tickets and buy advertising and all that the moment people have no interest at all in basketball you know imagine just imagine tomorrow we woke up in a world where nobody cared about basketball no one wanted to watch it LeBron James would be just as talented tomorrow as he is today but he would be worth zero for his basketball skills because nobody would want to buy a ticket or or watch a game. So so the source of wealth, the source of value, is always in the eyes of others, trying to figure out what other people want and need. One of the great disservices that our colleges and universities do today, if you walk onto any campus, there will be banners and flyers and all kinds of propaganda telling students to follow their passion. Mm -hmm. When I talk to students... I say, don't go follow your passion because your passion might be for something really silly and ridiculous. It might
1: have to be a hobby.
4: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I say, when you think about your future, rather than following your passion, why don't you focus on what other people want, what other people need, and then learn how to produce that, learn how to deliver it. Then you're setting yourself up for a very successful life where you're going to make wealth, you're going to create wealth for yourself by providing what other people want and value. And all of this, all of this is an attempt to try to shift attitudes very slightly from the, think of, think of the ordinary American today who looks at the world uh, in, in, through a sense of entitlement. They look at it around the world and they think, I'm entitled to a better house and a nicer car and more money and things that other people have. And what I want to do is shift that just very slightly, two or three degrees, To a view of looking at the world saying, how can I become more valuable so that I can create more wealth? Employees who look at the world, look at their job, look at their colleagues with a view of asking themselves, how can I become more valuable? Those are not the kind of employees who skip work to go protest down at the state capitol demanding raises in the minimum wage, for example, right? Instead, those are the kinds of employees who figure out how can they get more training? Can they learn a new skill? Can they solve a problem uh, at, at the workplace? Can they make things more efficient? What can they do to become more valuable to the people around them? That's the key to success, and all of that flows from this really simple core idea that wealth can be created,
1: and so. Well, you know, we're going to go to break. I'd like more information. I imagine there's business owners out there that are very interested in Upward Business Academy. So Dr. Tom Cranawitter, we'll go to break. We'll come back and learn a bit more about that. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. Uh, We'll be right back. Hey, Jason McBride over at Presidential Wealth Management. Uh, We can always trust the government, can't we?
2: Well, that depends on who you ask, him and what the situation is. Uh, A gentleman named Gerald Loeb who was the author of the book called The Battle for Investment Survival. Now, he was uh, lived from 1900 to 1974, so a lot of his writings about investing were about the old days, you know, the real old days in the stock market, uh, the New York Exchange, and there are still people down there passing mm-hmm. pieces of paper. But it's amazing how the same type of patterns and behavior Still repeat in the market to this day. Those old lessons are very, very helpful. And one of them is this. Uh, Again, he said, statements of high officials are practically always misleading when trying to bolster a falling market. And I believe that's true. If we think back to the 2008 meltdown, Mm -hmm. what were we being told, even by the chairman of the Federal Reserve, This is no big deal. It's a few subprime loans. It's contained. Mm -hmm. Remember, they kept telling us there's no need to worry. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to be okay. And they pretty much said that all the way down to the bottom. So, again, I think rather than trying to draw comfort or advice uh, from talking heads on TV, no matter who that talking head might be or how important or in the know You would think they should be. Uh, I think that it's better to just watch your own investments, see how they're behaving, and make your decisions on whether to buy, sell, or hold based on what's happening in your world rather than on the TV world.
1: You know, the theme as we have these conversations, Jason, is that you need to continue to hone in on your own in investment, your own economic well-being, instead of listening to all the experts out there.
2: Yeah, I think so, because a lot of the experts uh, might be experts at one thing, but not another. And from, uh, again, when we look at a lot of the high officials in the government, sometimes you come to the conclusion that they're not really experts at much of anything. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, Jason McBride, uh, you and all of the folks over at uh, Presidential Wealth Management can certainly take a look at uh, Individuals Nest Eggs and uh, you'd be happy to do that.
2: Absolutely uh, would be my pleasure. Uh, Give us a call at 303-694-1600 or check out our landing page we have with you guys Kim chickspresidential.com.
1: Well thanks Jason have a great day.
2: Work with mortgage professionals who will give you quick and accurate financial advice. Home Mortgage Alliance has the knowledge and expertise to explore the many financial options available to you. The mortgage process can be stressful, and as interest rates rise, it's more important than ever to get pre-qualified now, so you're ready to buy. Call Kim Sturz and Mark Cook with Home Mortgage Alliance to make sure that you're making the right financial choice for you and your family. 303-888-2732. Kim and Mark will remain available to you 24-7 to help you through the process. Choose the only mortgage professionals recommended by the Americhicks with Kim Munson. Call Kim and Mark with Home Mortgage Alliance today, 303-888-2732.
3: You want to succeed, so you need to dress for the job, event, or relationship that you seek. For over 30 years, entrepreneur, stylist, and Americhick Kim Munson has been helping women look their very best with well-priced, made-to-measure clothes that fit a busy lady's lifestyle. Gals, if you want to up your game and freshen your look, email kim at americhicks.com for your initial style consult. Kim at americhicks.com.
1: Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. We need to have some conversations. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. And I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well, offering you a conservatarian perspective. Thrilled to have in studio with me, Dr. Thomas Cranawitter. You know him, a scholar, author, speaker, teacher, inspirational guy all the way around. Great and, to have you here,
4: and an occasional guest on
1: the American. Uh, most definitely, That's right. we can't forget that. But uh, you're an entrepreneur, yeah. and that is something that is I would submit inherently American. <laughs> and uh, so you have several different companies. This one that we've been chatting about, this Upward Business Academy. And that is UpwardBA.com. It's talking about productivity and, and wealth. We were talking yeah. about that in the last uh, segment. So let's let's expound on that a bit. Yeah.
4: And, and also I want to mention if if people go to the website UpwardBA.com, uh, there's a little tab that says Business Basics. And if you scroll down, we've produced some short professional training movies. When I say short, they're two and a half to three minutes Perfect. each. They're very short. Um and what they do is they present these basic kind of ideas that we're talking about: what what what, what poverty is, what wealth is, how wealth is created, uh, with a real emphasis on how businesses are particularly well-designed machines and engines to create wealth. And anybody who's in a job should feel really fortunate that they're part of an organization whose whole purpose is to is to create wealth. And you know, one of the ways I came. To thinking about these things and studying these things I'm a I'm a student of human history and human nature and I spent years collecting data as a wonky researcher does on the total global amount of wealth over thousands of years and it turns out the total global amount of wealth for thousands of years on planet Earth, was very little. If you if you, if you if you graph this out, think of a, a graph line uh, go, spanning centuries and actually millennia, and the line is flat and very low. There was very little wealth in the world, and most of it was controlled by a handful of thugs. Uh, some, some of them called themselves pharaoh, others called themselves Caesar or king or emperor, right? some kind of tyrant. And in fact... For uh, re- recorded human history, that is history for which we actually have written records, stretches back about 5,000 years. And throughout most of that 5,000-year period of recorded human history, the main way for a group of people, whether it was a nation, a tribe, a clan, a city, the main way to increase its wealth was by a way of conquest to go wage war on some neighboring tribe or clan and take their stuff and take their stuff. Right. And so it's in that sense, it, the total amount of wealth really was a, a kind of fixed pie there. There were, there was only a limited amount of, of precious metals and gems and right jewelry and that kind of stuff. And it would get looted and raided and stolen from one group to another to another. And, 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 there was not much wealth being created and that that line of the total global amount of wealth is is low and flat until you get to the middle part of the 1700s the that is the 18th century right around the time of the american revolution Hmm. this really curious thing happens to the graph it shoots straight up it is the most remarkable thing and and So there I am as a social scientist, I'm collecting data and I'm I'm looking at these numbers and I think, wow, what in the world just happened there? Did did human nature all of a sudden change because because people became so much more creative, so much more productive? And the answer is no, uh, human nature didn't change. Human beings in the middle part of the 1700s, they were the same as human beings had been a century earlier and, and a thousand years earlier. What changed were the incentives around them, the laws around them. For the first time in history, at least in some parts of the world, in the Western world, some people started to adopt laws that protected private property rather than confiscating private property. And what that meant for the first time ever was even if you're poor at the moment, anything you create or produce in the future is yours to keep. And that fueled the greatest burst of entrepreneurial energy of invention and innovation. It's why, for example, the Industrial Revolution could not happen until the 19th century because it couldn't happen until property rights were protected. That's why there was no Industrial Revolution in, you know, 500 B.C. because there was no protection for private property. When I look at most of human history... I make an argument that most human beings lived in uh, they lived in miserable poverty. Uh, Lifespans were short. Life was pretty ugly for it throughout was most tough. Of, it was tough through most of human history and most people lived under what I call a slave incentive. That was th- th- think of the incentive of a slave. If a slave is working in the field and there's a master with a you know a chain or a whip saying commanding the slave, you will do a certain amount of work or you'll be punished. Well, how much work is the slave going to do? We know precisely how much. The slave will do exactly the amount they're commanded to do in order to avoid the punishment. But they're not going to do any more. Why would they do any more? Why would they produce any more? They don't get to keep anything. Everything they produce gets taken from them. So the slave incentive is an incentive to produce the bare minimum needed to avoid some kind of punishment or negative consequence. And that's how people lived. For, for nearly 5,000 years, once, once we establish laws that start protecting private property, that then creates a freedom incentive. That is the incentive to keep whatever you produce. Now it makes sense after property rights are created to say, say for example, invent a new tool. That makes your work more efficient. That you can actually do things faster than you used to be able to do, because the more you produce, the more you can sell, and
1: you get to keep all of that. Or you can start a company where you would uh, take that tool and sell that to others, so that their life can be more productive. Ab- absolutely,
4: and 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 that's why property rights is is at the core of this this what I'm calling the freedom incentive, which really is it's. It's innovation, it's inventiveness, it's entrepreneurial creativity of people looking around, figuring out what do other people want, what do they need, and how can I provide it best? And, and, it, and it also leads to this second phenomenon, which is just absolutely beautiful. As soon as a you, Kim Munson, you decide to use your freedom, you know that you're going to be able to keep whatever you produce, and you start... You start being productive. You start delivering something that other people value. I'm watching that and I might get an idea. I think I can do it better. Maybe I think I can deliver a better product at a lower price. What freedom, what follows from freedom is not only innovation and invention, but also competition. Mm -hmm. People start to compete and competition is, uh, well, let me say this. Excellence is inseparable from competition. Competition. Competition is how you get excellence, right? Today in the United States, we live in such a, a contradictory environment because on the one hand, uh, we, Americans will talk about how, how bad competition is in the business world, and yet Americans are wild for their sports. They love their <laughs> sports, right? And what's the core lesson in sports? Why? I always point out every time there's a, some kind of big, ch- you know, like a Super Bowl or a World Series, a big national championship... I always point out why was the winners as good as they were because all the other teams were almost that good, uh-huh. right? They they had to that winning team had to reach this level of excellence to beat everyone else because they're competing against them. And and that's what happens when you have competition, you get higher and higher levels
1: of excellence and everybody wins. Well, now Tom, you talked about in the old days, the way that one would create wealth they would go over and they would take somebody's stuff, yeah. But now what you're talking about is using your mind and competing and and trying to come up with something that somebody else will willingly give you their wealth because they say, "That's going to make my life better." And it seems like that's uh duh. But, I mean, this was really a big idea.
4: A huge idea. You know, I, I often use my iPhone as an example. Um, I use it because Steve Jobs, who founded Apple, he's no longer with us, but he's a very recognizable name and face from the business world. And so I'll hold up my iPhone, and I will say sort of laughingly, you know, a few years ago, I I made an exchange with Steve Jobs. We traded. I gave him a few hundred dollars. <laughs> And I also had to sign a, you know, a, a lifetime contract <laughs> with AT&T or something like that, in exchange for this phone. And I'll say, so so what does Steve Jobs get out of that trade? A few hundred dollars of mine. That's nothing to sneeze at, and it's also just a few hundred dollars. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's one really fancy dinner, you know, if mm-hmm. you go to an expensive restaurant. But what did I get from Steve Jobs? And the answer is a big chunk of his life. In fact, I'm confident holding this phone, I got more of Steve Jobs' life than his own wife did. And I say that because Steve Jobs got up every day and asked, how can I provide value to Tom Cranwitter and millions of other people? What can I do that they need? How can I make my technology, my machine more useful to them? And he thought about that virtually every waking moment of his life. That's what I got in that little trade. So even though Apple is this gigantic business, right, that's, that has set records for corporate profits, in a way, I got way more value from Apple than Apple got from me. And that's what happens when people are productive. Some start to create things that others find valuable. And then those others, unless they want to resort to stealing or begging, they need to be productive, so that they have something with which to trade and and that is the source of how people improve their lives and it all stems from the simple idea that wealth is created and people create wealth when they are secure in their
1: private property in their individual freedom so creating wealth isn't really greed Creating wealth is um, creating a product that people will willingly trade their money for. And if you do something well, if you get get a product that people really want, you're going to become wealthy because you've created so much value for others.
4: Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of push back. There's a famous line from Adam Smith, the the economist, and I'm not one to to quibble with Adam Smith much, but I do quibble with him here. The, 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 his famous line uh, from the, his book, The Wealth of Nations, is that. Uh, it's, it's not from altruism that the, uh, the butcher, the baker, the brewer right, provides our dinner. It's from their self-interest. Now, he's, Adam Smith is right about that, right? The, the, the brewer takes all that time to brew tasty beer for us to drink, and, and, and the, the baker takes all that time to bake tasty bread for us to eat, not because they're, they love us, but because of their own self-interest. That's true. However... Adam Smith did not go on to emphasize, I mean, imagine if the, if, if the baker made really bad tasting bread that no one wanted. What would happen? What, would the baker be able to satisfy his own self-interest if he was making bad bread that no one purchased? And the answer is, well, no, he wouldn't be able to satisfy his own self-interest. So even though he's pursuing his own self-interest, what does he have to focus on? has to focus on other people. What kind of bread do other people want? What do they like? Every every successful entrepreneur thinks very little about himself or herself. They focus almost exclusively on other people. What do other people want and what do other people need? In that sense, the very concept of business is it's so far from being immoral. It's one of the most beautifully moral ideas ever conceived by by the human mind because what it does is it unites our own self-interest with the interests of others. We are self-interested beings, human beings are self-interested beings, and business says, okay, stop being so narcissistic, stop thinking about yourself all the time, and pay attention to the people around you and how can you serve them better? What is it that they want? That's a gorgeous idea. That's the opposite of this of, of the kind of narcissism that we see running rampant in American culture today.
1: Well, and you are teaching this at Upward Business Academy. That is UpwardBA.com. Let's go to break. When we come back, let's talk about the culture in America today, what you're seeing. So this is Kit Munson with the AmeriChicks talking with Tom Cranwitter. We'll be right back.
4: Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. Karen Levine believes in home ownership. As a Colorado representative to the National Board of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect private property rights. Since losing her mother to breast cancer, Karen Levine has helped organize a local fundraising event called Karen's for the Cure, raising money for breast cancer research. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by the Americans with Kim Munson. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Call award-winning
1: realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree, disagree. Let's have a conversation, and offering you a conservatarian perspective, check out my website, americhicks.com. This conversation with Dr. Thomas Cranawitter regarding Upward Business Academy, that's upwardba.com, is really fascinating. It, it's changing the, the kind of the thought process just a little bit, a little bit of the, uh, you know, what's going on in America today. And you had talked about, Tom, in, in the f- first segment that we chatted, it, regarding thugs, that took stuff from other people they came in rode in on their horses and had their weapons and they took stuff that, we, that, that that's my my nickname for tyrants yeah, yeah well They're thugs well you know what i think we have some thugs in america today yeah. and that is, is uh, there are those that have figured out the way to take people's stuff is through taxation and rules and regulations uh and so do how can we fight back against that? We've talked a lot about freedom. Is freedom yeah. possible yeah. now?
4: Well, so you're you're right. There are people who have, in fact, let me draw upon here a, a very important distinction that was made first by a, a colleague of mine at Hillsdale College, Bert Folsom. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with the work of Bert Folsom, I highly recommend you go look him up on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, Bert is a historian, and in particular, he's a he's he focuses on economic history this is a guy for example who knows the entire history of the united states tax code like the back of his hand it's ridiculous how much he knows but he made a distinction uh, in his book the myth of the robber barons between a market entrepreneur versus a political entrepreneur and his point is a market entrepreneur just goes out there into uh, you know the the free market and competes and invents and innovates and while other people are doing the exact they too are inventing and innovating, right and there's competition and to be successful there you have to be very entrepreneurial in the market by making people happy producing things that other people want right uh, offering things at lower prices than your competitors a political entrepreneur is someone who looks at the structure of government and all that power and figures out how to use that power to benefit himself or to benefit his friends? Uh, so think of, you know, g- getting elected into office and then using the power of government to tax some people in order to give a subsidy to, <laughs> to your friend in business over here, or a special contract, or or, or things mm-hmm. like that. And it's called many times economic development. Y- yes, it, yes, 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 it, yes, yeah. it is. In fact um i 've done i 've done a fair amount of work with some political figures from Africa and in africa there 's an entire social and economic science uh, a, a term of that science they call the developmental state what what, what they mean by the developmental state <laughs> is nations that basically go beg other nations for free stuff send us send us free stuff um, and and so how do these political entrepreneurs how are they able to do what they do and the answer is they get a lot of electoral support there are a lot of americans who agree with them that they have some rightful claim to what belongs to others and and i have seen this so i first exper- i first came across this idea of entitlement by studying american political history uh, you get to people like FDR, the New Deal, where he, he he had an entire platform, what he called an economic bill of rights, mm-hmm. that all Americans have a right to a job and a house and an education. It sounds and, like and, the
1: new Green Deal. Yeah, the new <laughs> Green Deal,
4: you know, it, it's not very new, it turns out. This was, this was happening back in the 1930s. And and then what I realized is that really had, that's, those ideas of entitlement have come home to roost and business owners now are confronting those bad ideas, those bad attitudes in their own employees. So many industries, for example, suffer terribly high rates of turnover uh, because because so many employees don't actually value the job that they they have. And most business owners never take the time to sit down and actually crunch the numbers and figure out what turnover costs them. I mean, turnover turns out to be really expensive. There's not only Direct costs of turnover, right? When so when an employee leaves, or, or if you have to fire an employee, mm-hmm. first of all, you have to go you have to go advertise for the new position. You got to find someone, pay someone to sit and look through all the applications, do the interview, you know, hire the new person, do the training, and then there's all kinds of indirect costs associated with that. Uh, when you have high rates of turnover, the quality of service you provide goes down, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have constantly new people in your business who don't, they're not able to take care of your customers very well. It damages the employee culture in all kinds of bad ways. And, and so I started going out into businesses offering training for employees, uh, explaining to them, really trying to inspire them to improve their own life by becoming more valuable. And what I'm really getting at, at the core of all this, is to try to push back against this attitude of, Entitlement, this, this attitude that, that I deserve something that I haven't actually earned, that I haven't actually created mm-hmm. for myself. And, and it's sort of interesting to look at this um, in the big context of freedom in the United States. Culturally, I, I would argue we have a culture of entitlement today, and it's strikingly different than the culture that launched the American Revolution. As a scholar, Uh, I'm a student of political philosophy, so uh, for many years I've been enamored with the great books of the great minds, Mm -hmm. you know, reading the Greeks and the Romans and and especially Enlightenment-era thinkers like John Locke and Adam Smith and Montesquieu and, and of course, the founders, they they mention those Mm -hmm. writers often. And I used to think that those books and those ideas were the key to understanding the American Revolution. And, and I've really changed my mind in recent years on that. I'm still happy. I'm happy that John Locke was writing his books and Adam Smith was. And, 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 and it's, a great, it's a great thing to study those books. And there's something else that's even bigger in explaining the American Revolution. When you think what was happening for 150 years in North America prior to the american revolution now, those people were english right they were english colonists Everyone one uh what became the original 13 states every one of them were english colonies prior mm-hmm. to uh, the, the revolution they were part of the british empire and they all started with a charter from the king the king would grant a charter which is basically permission it's a permission slip to go sail across the ocean and go set up a little colony if you survive the trip. And that original charter was the only connection between the colonists living in North America and the government, the English government in England. Uh, those people, you know, we, we tend to forget what life was like for the early colonists. It was brutal. It was miserable. Uh, many of those early colonies... A half or more of the people would die within the first year. They froze to death. They, they, they starved to death. They they died from disease. I mean, it was horrific.
1: Well, the, the, <clears throat> with the Mayflower, if I remember right, the the ship captain stayed for a bit because he thought, I don't know if I can leave these people here. The, the guys were on shore. The women would go back and be on the boat, yeah. and they would put their bodies over the children to keep them warm, and many of the women died
4: died yeah. i mean it was astonishing they, they froze to death it, it, it was horrific so so what you see there's th- those early colonists those were people living in a state of complete dire poverty there's there's no other way to describe it total poverty where huge chunks of them are dying from starvation and 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 freezing to death and then they start to work productively they start to create they build things, right? They grow things. They built that? They, they built those, <laughs> those businesses and those homes. And over the course of the next 150 years, they become really the most productive, creative group of people on the planet of the earth. And here's what's really interesting. Those people had never known a tax except those that they imposed on themselves at the most local level. There's only taxes they ever knew. In the 1760s, England gets into a global world war, the English Empire versus the French Empire. We we call it here the French Indian War. Over there, they call it the Seven Years War. But the point is it was it was global. They had naval fights and army fights all over all over the earth. The English Empire emerged victorious and broke. Um, and so doing what governments typically do they start looking around who from from whom can we take money who can we tax and they see those colonies in north america really productive really creative and they think let's start taxing them to fill the coffers for the english government and that's where the the pushback starts right those colonists say whoa 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 you're not taxing us without representation right no taxation without representation and that will lead to the revolution but my point is culturally those were a people who were used to living by the sweat of their own brow they built their own homes they grew their own food they ran their own businesses they made their own choices they carved out a life for themselves so when a john locke comes along as an example and offers a theoretical justification for private property and individual natural rights those revolutionaries in north america it was sort of common sense for them they're like yeah, of course we have a natural right to our own property. It wasn't even controversial. Today, culturally, Americans are very different in, in today than they were back in 1776. There are large numbers, huge swaths of the American population who genuinely believe that they are entitled to to other people's things, to the property, to the wealth that, that other people have earned and created. And and, and they couch all of this in terms of their rights. It's it's what some people call socialism, right? It is using the power of government to take from other people, but it's not actually creating new wealth. And, you know, as, as Margaret Thatcher famously said, uh, socialism is works great. Except for one little problem. At the the end, you run out of other people's money, right? And and so that's really where we are culturally today. Are we a culture of entitlement and socialism and, and theft, or are we a culture of freedom and creativity and entrepreneurial production?
1: So if you want more information, be sure and check out UpwardBA.com. That's UpwardBA.com. Dr. Tom Cranwinter, thank you so much. And today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. God bless you, and God bless America.
3: And I don't want no one to cry, but tell them...